Thank you, Linford, for that devotional and those thoughts. It actually goes along very well with the message this evening. Um, this year, I taught Bible school, and I don't think I taught this particular curriculum before, but uh, the study was on Joseph, and I have some of my students here this evening. It's not going to be an exact repeat of Bible school, but the book was on Joseph and his life, and so this evening the message is going to be on lessons from the life of Joseph and some of the things that you shared there, Linford, about waiting on the Lord and being patient and actually that verse about a pit and so forth and that psalm really do go along with the message this evening. So you can turn to Genesis if you'd like and follow along some. It's not going to be a verse-by-verse Study, but we will read a few passages out of uh, Genesis. And the first area that I'll be looking at will be Genesis uh, chapter 32. But before that, uh, the first lesson that I think we can learn from that and apply to our lives is this, and that is a turbulent childhood does not need to define us. Joseph did not have the greatest childhood, if you think about it. It doesn't say that he, and I'm thinking now before he was actually sold into Egypt. I'm talking when he was younger, some of the things that he went through. He would have observed, I'm sure, some of the tensions of what was going on with Laban and Jacob and would have at least known a lot of the details about those two trying to trick each other, trying to take advantage of each other at times, and some of the things that transpired throughout that. Eventually, Jacob leaves and departs, and he finally left, we might say left at night undercover because he felt like he couldn't get out of there, and Laban was upset about it and takes off and actually overtakes him. And then there's somewhat of a confrontation, and eventually they make an agreement and a covenant and to kind of, I guess, go about their separate ways. But I'm sure for a young boy or whatever age he might have been at that time and what all he heard about that or observed with his own eyes surely would have had an, uh, made an impression on him. Those kind of things were going on in your family as a child. I'm sure it would have the potential to maybe change your direction or your perception of people or maybe even the perception of the God of your father and grandfather and great-grandfather and so forth. And then if we go to chapter 32 of Genesis, you see there that after they leave, after he leaves and he comes back, Jacob that is, that he is going to um, meet with his brother Esau. And so there is fear, and he prepares to meet his brother. And he, if you remember that story, he, Jacob sets his family in two groups, and, and he puts uh, the one group over here and the one group over here, and he says, now if, if he comes after one group, then at least the other can get away and be gone. And he sets the little children in the back and he kind of sets them in order and so forth. And he puts Rachel 
in the back because he, he loved her more. And, and so he, he, he sets this all up and he meets Esau. And it's interesting that Esau actually was, uh, well, he also sent a bunch of gifts and all this kind of stuff. And Esau was actually willing and ready to be reconciled. He wasn't out to destroy Jacob. He was, he was willing to be reconciled. Again, as a child, I don't know what that would do, what kind of all that tension and that fear and everything. But it could be that, that from this particular situation that Joseph may have actually learned some things here that helped him later in life and he learned them from his uncle rather than from his father. And that was from Esau. The fact that Esau was, did not want to take revenge and wipe them out. And then they move into the area there, into that country. And uh, his sister would have been a half-sister. Uh, Dinah was um, defiled by some of the men of the community or a man of the community there and they wanted to marry her and they wanted to intermingle and intermarry and so forth. And so some of Joseph's brothers pull a trick on those people and later they come in and they, they deceive Hamar and Shechem and they later come in and kill them and the other men. The scripture would say that they took their sheep and their cattle, their wealth, their children and their wives captive. Well, that's the kind of family you want to grow up in, right? And dad says, you have made my name to stink among the inhabitants of this land. What's going to happen to me? And so again, there could have been this fear as a boy. What's going to happen? Are they going to come in and wipe us out? And who are these new people that have been taken captive into our family? I don't know what they did with them. They kept them as servants. They sold them as slaves. I don't know what happened, but they brought them in. And maybe somebody knows what happened to those people that they took captive. But So that's the kind of home, if you will, that Joseph grew up in. A lot of things going on. Now, Dad later wrestles with an angel, if you will, or wrestles with God and some things are changed maybe in his heart. But I go back to the point there that I want to make, and that is that a turbulent childhood or whatever you want to call it does not have to define who you are and what kind of a character you have. The next lesson that I think we can learn from Joseph is you don't have to say everything you know. And let's take a look at chapter 37 and I don't know the Bible never says that it was wrong that he did this but it uh, didn't help his relationship with his family at all he was already uh, well let's just go there we'll go to chapter 37 I'll start reading at verse 3 says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. And I believe, maybe somebody knows, I don't know. Am I wrong? I think maybe Israel was around 80 when he was born. Somebody know better than that? I, I don't know. He, he, was, he was an older gentleman when he had him. And he had more children after that, but... Uh, 
And so he, and plus he was a son from his favorite wife as well. That probably doesn't help your childhood either if your dad has a favorite wife and one that's not so much a favorite and then children with other uh, women that are given to him to wife and so forth. It, it, I can't imagine that helps a childhood. It was a little more the culture then. But so he was, he was loved, it says in verse 3, loved more than the others. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. So I'm sure Joseph felt that. He's a teenager at this point, uh, middle late teens or somewhere in there. He was 17 when he went into Egypt, and so somewhere around maybe 16, 17 when he had these dreams, I'm not exactly sure how old. And his older brother wouldn't even hardly speak to him. They hated him. He had to feel that tension. Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. So the question has often been, should he just not have talked about his dreams? It's interesting, we could say, well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, that old saying, well, had he not told them his dreams, would they have ever sold him into Egypt and his dreams even come true? And yet I think God could have had them come true anyway. God could have worked that out. But I do think that is a lesson that we can learn. And sometimes, especially if it's with people that we already um, maybe don't have the greatest relationship with, do we have to say everything we know? Well, let's go on here and read a little bit more about this. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words, what he said. And he dreamed yet another dream and told to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brother envied him, but his father observed the saying, or did take notice of it. There's a question that uh, sometimes arises, and, and that is, was there a possibility? Now, if you read it in Genesis and assume it's all chronological, there's, there's a little question. What, some people question whether or not Rebecca had died before Joseph was sold into Egypt. And those that would say they're sure she did not is because of the fact that there's no mention made about her being sad about him dying like Joseph or like um, Jacob thought she, he had died. But then there's also the question here where he sees the moon, the sun and the moon and these 11 stars. And he says, shall me and, and your mother bow down? Well, the fact is she doesn't go to Egypt the, when he's there. But it is interesting that 
she is brought into that picture here. We'll leave that for something for, for you to figure out. It's not really critical to this. And so um, that's a question. Is it, is it always, is it um, always the best for us to say things, especially if in a situation where we know a relationship is already strained? Well, let's go then to a little bit further into chapter 37. And another lesson that we can learn from this is that God is with us even when we are in the pit. Now, it may not have felt like it. Joseph may not have felt a whole lot of protection being in a pit, his brothers hating him, not knowing what he was going to do. And if you go into, I believe it's Psalms. I didn't look it up for this evening, but there's a psalm, I believe, that brings out the fact that he would have basically begged them or just, yeah, begged them not to sell him and not to send him to Egypt. It doesn't say as much here, but if you read that psalm, I believe it's a psalm, that he besought them, he begged them, he did not want them to sell him. And yet God was with him in the pit. In let's read verses. Uh, let's just read verses eighteen on down through twenty-eight. When they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, "Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams." And Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. And it came to pass when Joseph was come unto his brethren that they stripped Joseph of his coat, his coat of many colors that was on him, and he took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. They sat down to eat bread, and to, they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let us not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brethren were content or satisfied with that. Then uh, there passed by many knights, merchant men, and they drew and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They brought him, they brought Joseph unto Egypt. Now Reuben comes back and realizes what happened and he's pretty upset. But so the question is, if, if even if Joseph did not feel God's protection when he was in the pit, God was protecting him. God made sure that he was not killed. There were some that wanted to kill him. Come on, let's just kill him. And then we'll see if we ever have to bow down to him. See what happens with his dreams after he's dead. And, uh, but God used one of his brothers to keep him alive. And then he sold into Egypt. So the lesson there for us is, is sometimes maybe when we're in a pit in life, and I think you understand what I mean by that, a very low time, a very low spot, 
something's going on and, and we feel maybe abandoned, maybe we feel people are against us, we feel deserted, whatever it might be, and maybe we don't feel God's presence at the time. Maybe we don't even feel God's protection or presence. And yet God is there with us even when we don't necessarily feel that. And I will also say that even if we don't feel that, and, if, and I don't know exactly what Joseph felt here, but if he didn't, he, still did, he did not abandon God even if he felt abandoned by God. And I don't know if he did or not, but he did not abandon his God Okay, another lesson I think we can see is we can prosper even in adversity. Even when things are going very badly, we can still prosper spiritually, maybe not financially, maybe not physically, but spiritually. And Joseph, here he was down in Egypt now, and um, he ends up being sold there. And the Bible talks about him being a prosperous person. I'll turn to chapter 39. And so we, even in adversity, he was a servant or a slave or something. He was not, I mean, he was just, in Egypt at this point, he was somewhat, we might say, the scum of society. He was a nothing. He was bought and sold as property. And that's what he was. And so he goes to work here. The guy that buys him uh, is Potiphar. He's an officer. And it says in um, chapter 39 of verse 2, it says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. That word prosperous man, from what I understand, goes a little beyond just being successful. That word in the Hebrew can have something to do with the idea of moving quickly or energetic or getting a hold of something and really doing something. And so I take this that Joseph, he sold, he's, he's not in a good place, and yet he has an attitude and a life that God can bless because he is still going to get it done. He's going to work. I, I'm here. I might as well do things right. And he does things right. And so I think that's a lesson for us. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next lesson. But God made him to prosper. And if you go over into verse Five, it says it came to pass from that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he knew not aught he had save the bread he did eat and Joseph was a goodly person and well favored so Joseph here was a man that was doing the right thing in a very bad situation. But he was still prosperous. He still was working hard to do what he could, and God blessed him for it. I don't think God could have blessed him, nor would he have blessed his owner if he would have went in there with an attitude. I don't belong here. 
I have no right to be here. I got sold here unjustly. I didn't know anybody anything, and yet they sold me. And I'm going to do as little as possible, and I'm going to have an attitude when I do it. And that's just how it's going to be, because I don't belong here. God couldn't have blessed that, and I don't think he would have ever rose to what he, had wrote, what he did. We can also learn a little bit of a lesson here that when we are doing the things the way God wants us to do it, and God can bless that, that it can even be a blessing. People that are around us that maybe are not Christians can be blessed by God blessing us, is what happened here. Okay, the next lesson I'd like to look at is um, starting at verse 7 there on down to 20, and I don't think I'll read all of that, but the one, thing, the one thing I will read there in verse 9, it says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The lesson is that doing right is always the right thing to do. It's just always the right thing to do. It doesn't matter where our setting is, uh, how bad we think we have it. It's always the right thing to do. And I told uh, Bible school class, and, and I think you all can understand this. You know, here he is, a 17, maybe 18-year-old boy at this time. He's a young man, prime of his life. And he doesn't know if he'll ever see his family again. There's no one here that really knows him as far as his family, his background, um, his culture. Here he is, and he is given this opportunity. And... From what I understand, in, in Egypt at that time, this was not necessarily an uncommon practice either. It wasn't as though there was great morality in the land. And so he could have done this and gotten by with it in our minds. And yet, he said, I cannot do this and sin against God. And so he refused to do it. And one of the things I think we can learn from this is sometimes doing right um, is not about being more comfortable in our situation or being immediately rewarded, maybe physically or even emotionally or whatever. I do believe that he had a pure conscience, and that was a reward. But sometimes we have this idea, if I do the right thing, if I act right, if I make right choices, then God's going to make everything work out so that everything's great. And I don't know if Joseph, over the next number of years, looked back and said, did I do the right thing? Should I have just sinned against God and I wouldn't be sitting in prison? I wouldn't have all this trouble and all this. But no, he, I don't know that he would have ever thought that. But I think I could have. I could have thought, you know what, I, I did the right thing. I did what was right, and I ended up getting in all this trouble for it. And I think that that is something that we have to, as, as Christians, keep in mind. That right now, for the most part in our country, you do the right things, and usually it's going to work out okay, usually. Now, I will say this, sometimes, even in our Christian settings, maybe it's where we get in more trouble, where we do the right things or say the right things or try to stand for the right things, and we feel 
maybe don't end up in prison, but we may feel the pressure and ridicule or something. But there are a lot of people in the world today, Christians, that if they do the right things, they end up literally in prison or dead or tortured or they lose their families or they lose their jobs, they lose whatever. And even in this country, sometimes we can we hear people who do the right things and they lose their jobs over it. Just uh, sometimes ridiculous things that people do the right thing and they lose their jobs. I'm sure some of you are familiar with some of the Supreme Court rulings that came out this week. And one of those was basically, uh, if I understand it right, that web designer that refused to make a website. She apparently makes websites, he or she, I'm not sure, for people that are getting married or whatever, and she refused to do one for a same-sex marriage. And, of course, they sued her and went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, if you look at the headline in Negotia News, it's really confusing. I don't know if anybody saw that or not, but it makes absolutely no sense. Um, But if you actually read the story and know the story, the Supreme Court did rule in the web designer's favor that um, don't have to make the website if it goes against your religion. <clears throat> but there's been a lot, a lot of probably money and stress and turmoil on that person for just doing the right thing, standing up and doing the right thing. And it may, it could have come out the other way too and could have lost her business or his business, whatever it was. Anyway, so sometimes doing the right thing does not bring immediate results that are comfortable for us. And they didn't for Joseph. So doing the right thing doesn't always do that. But doing the right thing is still the right thing to do. While he's in prison, he ends up in prison. And while he's there, again, he has an attitude that God can bless and he is, ends up being the ruler over the whole prison. I'm not exactly sure how that all worked. I, some, some commentators would say or some people would say that this was a prison that was probably very, very hard to be in because these were political prisoners. And so the uh, politicians in charge would have made it the roughest on them of anybody. And others would have said it was more where a little bit more of a what we might call a white collar prison in our country. I don't know what it was. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. Joseph ends up at least kind of being in charge there. And so he could have taken the attitude that, well, I'm in charge and the rest of these people are under me and I'm going to do my own thing and and they're just going to have to live with it. But a lesson that I think we can learn from this is that it's good to help out those who are maybe even the lowest around us as in our idea of the lowest. Sometimes we like to help out the people that are up here somewhere and we don't worry about the ones that are down here in society. And what I say by helping them out is two of them have dreams and they're all perplexed about their dreams. And so he says, well, I can interpret dreams, or God does. God's the interpreter of dreams. I'll tell you what your dreams mean. And basically the one, he tells the one, in three days you're going to get your job back, and the other in three days you're going to lose your head. I mean, that's a pretty simple way of putting it. That's kind of what it was. 
But he did tell the one who was going to get his job back, he says, now, when you get back in a position up there with Pharaoh, tell him my situation. Tell him what's going on. Tell him why I'm here and I'm not, I shouldn't have to be here. And basically put in a good word for me. See if you can get me out of here. And of course, you know what happens. He forgot about him. It goes two years, he forgot about him. I suppose by now Joseph's either assuming one of two things. Either he told him and the guy couldn't care less or he just plumb forgot. And so how many more years will I be here? He goes on doing the right things. He really does. But he took the time to interpret those dreams for someone who he would not have had to interpret them. He could have been in there and said, well, you know what? I know good and well what those dreams mean. Let them figure it out on their own. I'm not going to tell them. I'm not going to do it. But he told them he did the right thing in that setting, which later allowed the one to say, oh, I know a guy that can interpret dreams. I remember because he told two of his dreams and they worked out exactly like he said. And they said, oh, let's go get him. They bring him out. And so doing the right thing there for a couple of years, for two years, didn't look like maybe it amounted to anything, but it did. It did work out for him, and, and it later helped to bring him out of prison. So another lesson I think we can learn in all of this is that, uh, maybe we'll get to that one a little bit, but we look at all what happened in, you know, through his promotion and everything. So he did get brought out of prison. He interpreted dreams and and uh, and because of that, he suggested that, you know what, you really ought to put a guy in charge to, to do this. He didn't say put me in charge. He said you ought to put somebody in charge. And the Pharaoh said, well, I don't know of anybody better. And so they put him in charge. And so now he becomes prosperous. And... Sometimes that's when it's easier to forget God than when we're in the pit or in the prison, when we're prosperous. But a lesson to be learned is we can't forget God when we're prosperous either. And so let's go to chapter 41. And one of the clues that we have that he did not forget God in his prosperity even in the beginning of his prosperity, is in chapter 41, verses 50 and 52. It says, and, Joseph, um, and unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bare unto him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Note what his names means. For God, he said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Now, he didn't forget who his family was, but he forgot all that. He was able to not dwell on that and to focus on what God had done for him. God had helped him forget all that. And in verse 52, it says, And the name of the second called he Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Now, one of the lessons that you can learn from this is, is he says, in the land of my affliction, he was not 
afraid to say, I am in a land of affliction. Things have not all went well. I've had some rough times. I've had some affliction. But God has made me to prosper even in that. And I think that's something we can learn too, that even in our afflictions in life, that God, if we're willing and we have an attitude like Joseph, that God can make us to prosper. Maybe not physically. He may not put us in charge of all the granaries in the United States or anything like that, but which I don't want to be. But he may, but he will prosper us spiritually if we allow him to do that. So another lesson I think we can learn then is, so he tells them, he tells them of the dream that he had. He said, now we're going to have seven years of plenty. And it says that when they gathered up the grain in those seven years, that they had basically handfuls. It came to a point where they stopped off counting it because there was too much to keep track of. Just store it up. Just put it away. Just fill the bins. Just make this thing work. And so that's what they did. And if you think about it, he had to be quite the man to be able to organize building those kind of granaries uh, that where the grain didn't spoil. Of course, it's a very dry climate there. They dried the grain. I'm sure it was different than it would be trying to store it in the Midwest here. But they stored this grain for these seven years and they put all this away. And think about this for a second. Seven years and things are growing well. And things are going well. And they're putting things away at a rate they can't even count. Do you think it took faith for Joseph to sit back and think, now, wait a minute, what if that dream wasn't true? What if in year eight we have just as much and year nine we have just as much and year 10? At some point, Pharaoh's going to be knocking on my door saying, what was this all about? We got to get rid of some grain. So a lesson here for us is, that we need to have just as much faith when things are going well as when things are not going well. And again, that's sometimes harder to do. But he had to continue to have faith and believe that what God in those dreams, what he had seen and what he had told Pharaoh and what he had understood was an interpretation from God, he had to believe and have faith that this is what's going to happen. And after about year five, when the granaries are just filling up and we're building more granaries, I would have, I would have been thinking, okay, we've got two more years. This, is it going to happen or isn't it? But I don't see that it ever really says that he wavered. And sure enough, year eight comes and the water spigot gets shut off. And it starts to go bad as far as in the land. And if you look at and it's interesting if you look at what happened there and you actually look at secular history regarding Egypt, which there's probably more history regarding Egypt than about any place in the world from that time period. And they pretty much think they know who the pharaohs were. And, and it looks like at one point the local, shall we say the local authorities, lost a lot of power and a lot more power was given to the federal government, if you want to call it that way. And it makes sense because if you read the stories, you know, they came and they bought grain to start with. 
And then they came and said, we're out of money. And so they sold their, gave them their cattle and a bunch of stuff. Eventually they give them their lands. Eventually they just give them everything. Says, we'll just work for you. We're just, we're yours. Just give us something to eat. And basically Pharaoh ended up owning the whole thing. And so it did, it did work out that way. And we know it did. And, and, but you know, in, in year five, Joseph didn't know what year eight was going to be outside of faith. It was all by faith. We look back and read about it. He was looking forward and he was going by faith. And so a lesson that we can learn is we need to have faith even when things are prosperous and we, uh, uh, we believe God's word says what it does. We have to have faith that that's how it's going to work out. Another lesson that we can learn from this is that God works things out in his timing. So Joseph was about 17 when he went into Egypt. I believe it was about 30 when he got out of prison. Now you add seven years of plenty to that, and that puts him at about 37. And maybe throw on a couple more years for the drought to really get to its peak. And all of a sudden, uh, Joseph's about 40 years old. And he was sold in when he was 17. That's a long time to wait to see God work, isn't it? And that's what I was thinking about when Linford talked about waiting patiently. Uh, I don't know of any of us here that have had to ever wait patiently in prison um, through being a slave or a servant and then even in prosperity and all the ups and downs, if you will, or the, maybe I should say the downs and then the up that, that Joseph went through. God worked things out in his timing. I was going to ask if we have anybody here that's 17 and anybody that's 40. I don't see anybody. Anybody here right around 40 years old, 38, 40? Hey, there, Gerald back there. So, Gerald, one of you guys not quite. Philip, are you 17? Okay. So it would be the time. So if Philip was sold into prison. So think about this. Uh, how would you like to be sitting in Egypt in prison and et cetera until you're Gerald's age. He's an old guy, isn't he? <laughs> well, when you're your age, it kind of feels that way. Sorry, Gerald. I know you're looking up here saying the old guy's in a pulpit. I get it. Um, but that's a long time to wait on the Lord from the time that you're Philip's age till the time you're Gerald's age, especially when things, a lot of that period, it was only the last let's say nine years maybe, eight, nine years of that time period where things were actually going well for him and he was this high up guy in the country. All the rest of that time was not good, not good for him. So God works things out in his timing, not ours. Another lesson we can learn from Joseph's life, of course, it is better to forgive than to hold grudges. I believe Joseph was blessed by God because he forgave his family long before they showed up. I don't think he thought he would ever see him again, especially when in his younger years. He probably thought he would never see his father again. He had a younger brother. There's debates on how old that younger brother was when he was sold in Egypt. He wanted to know if that younger brother was still alive. He wanted to see his younger brother. Remember that? When he starts putting all these tests to his brothers and saying who has to come and who doesn't, who gets locked up till he sees him and all this, he wants to see his younger brother. He probably thought he'd never see these people again. 
but he is blessed to see him. But I believe he had forgiven them a long time before that. And I don't think he forgave them just because all of a sudden he became prosperous. Oh, I'm prosperous now. Things are working out. I think I'll forgive him back. Yeah, I think I'll just forgive him. I don't think he would have become prosperous in that position had he not been forgiving before. I don't know exactly what that forgiveness journey looked like for Joseph. I suppose when he got there and he was on the auction block and they were auctioning him off, however they did it back then, they sold him. Um, I don't know what his feelings were like. Sure, it wasn't pleasant. At what point did he decide, you know what? God is going to work this out. And I'm not going to hold grudges. I'm not going to. I'm not going to live my life under the burden of an unforgiving spirit. At some point, he had to make that decision. Maybe not in those very words, but those were choices he had to make. So I don't think he forgave just because he was prosperous, um, or else I don't know that he would have forgave because once he was prosperous, he wouldn't have had to. I've got life by its. I got things by the tail now. I'm I'm good to go. So let's go to chapter 50. We're jumping over now all the time when his family came and his father came and all these people came. And now his father ends up dying. And remember, Jacob wanted to be buried back in with his fathers, as they would say, back in his home country. And so they pack up the family with the exception of the little ones and the children and they go back to, back to Canaan, back to the land where they had come from to bury his father. And as far as I know, and again, I'm open for correction on this, as far as I know, from the age of 17 until they take his bones back 400 years later, basically, roughly, I think this is the only time that the scripture would say that he ever went back to his home country was just when he went back to bury his father. And that must have been kind of interesting going back and, you know, nowadays you go back and like, oh, wow, they got a dollar general there now. And oh, they got the, oh, they tore the Burger King down. And oh, they got, the, oh, they, no Walmart there anymore. Is it, what's that? You know, that, I, I don't, I don't think that's what he saw. I think things probably hadn't changed a lot geographically. Oh, they might have went past some little villages and towns, and oh, they added a few houses here. They did a little bit here. But yet there had to be something about going back to his home country that was really special. But he didn't stay there. As a matter of fact, he had vowed to Pharaoh that I won't stay there. I say vowed. He told him, he said, I want to go back. Please let me go back. I'll be back to Egypt. I'll come back. And so that had to be quite a journey for him. Well, Starting at verse 14, and this is the lesson that I want us to think about when we read this. That even when we do the right things, we may still be misunderstood. Okay, Even when we do the right things, we may still be misunderstood. And see if you think he was misunderstood here. Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure or perhaps hate us and will certainly requite us for all the evil which we did unto him. 
And they, they didn't even go themselves. Look what they did. And they sent a messenger under Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Notice what Joseph did. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. They thought that the only reason that Joseph had not put them in prison or killed them or something all this time was just because dad was still alive. He had done all this good stuff for him. He, he had told them to live in a good part of the country. He'd done all these favors. He was taking care of them. And dad dies, and they all travel back to bury their dad, and they go back to Egypt. And they start thinking, you know what? The only reason he's been nice to us is because, it's because dad was alive. Now that dad's gone, he's going to kill us. He's going to do evil to us. He's going to hate us. And so here Joseph had done the right things. He had forgiven. He had done the right things. He had told him that more than once. And yet they had misunderstood him and they didn't believe him. And so that lesson for us is, is sometimes, even when we do the right things, we may still be misunderstood by the people around us and by people even that we love. Another lesson is what others may do for evil, God can use it for good. Verse 19, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought it evil against me, but God meant it for unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. So they, they had done it for evil, but God meant it for good. And there are things in our lives that God may not necessarily desire for someone to do to us or say to us or a situation for us to be in. It may not be something that he says, oh, this has to happen to this person. And so he brings about this evil upon us. But God can still use it for good if we allow him to. That's our choice often, if we allow God to use it for good or not. Will I allow God to use this in my life in some way to either strengthen me or to help others or to bless others or even just to give me the opportunity to show forgiveness to someone. And that's a powerful thing. Love and forgiveness are powerful things, especially in a, in a culture like this. And so here you have an, uh, this, this idea of doing it, that God meant it for good even though they meant it for evil. So a few things that I think in that, if we want God to be able to use the things that maybe others mean for bad, if we want God to be able to use it for good, I think there are several things that have to happen. One, we have to maintain our faith. Joseph maintained his faith. I think he did it when he was in Potiphar's house. He did it when he was in prison. He did it during the seven years of plenty. And he did it during the, the years of famine. And it looks like all throughout his life, he maintained his faith. 
If we want things that happen in our lives to be used for good by God, I think we need to be willing to forgive. And that was something that Joseph is known for, for forgiveness. And to be content and have a worshipful attitude. There are times when I know I, I wouldn't have been content where Joseph was at in life. Those years between Philip's age and Gerald's age, it would have been pretty tough to be content. That's the prime of your life, some people say. Now, Gerald's still in the prime of his life. Philip doesn't realize that, but he is. Um, so, you know, there's that. But, but yet you think you're to that age and this. What was God, what's going on? What happened to those dreams back there? And that was another thing I didn't mention during that thing of faith. Joseph had faith that those, that those dreams that he interpreted for Pharaoh were going to come true. So much so that he was willing to put his life on a line and build granaries and store up grain. He had faith even though he had yet to see those dreams he had had actually come true and didn't know when or how they ever would. And yet he still had faith that God's the interpreter of dreams. And so I think that's a lesson to us that we, we have faith and we base it on truth, not on our experiences. He had not experienced his dreams coming true yet, but believed God anyway. So God wants to use our hard times to fulfill his better plans, I believe, and also our good times as well. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the um, lives that you tell us about in your word that we can learn from. Thank you for the life of Joseph. And thank you for what he did for you and what he has done even for us and for people down through the ages being able to observe his faithfulness and his forgiveness through really bad times in his life. So Lord, give us hearts like that. Help us to learn lessons from these men in the Bible and these women in the Bible that we can learn from to live more like you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.